The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre, Part 2, The Rebirth. Epistemology. Epistemology is the part of philosophy that asks, what can we know? What can we be sure of? How do we get beyond mere opinion to real knowledge? Now, traditionally, there are two approaches to epistemology, rationalism and empiricism. Rationalism says that we gain knowledge through reasoning whereas empiricism says that we gain knowledge through our sensory experience. And although there are a few extremist philosophers that hold to either one or the other, generally most agree that both of these approaches to knowledge are needed, and that to some extent they support and correct each other. Rationalists focus on what they call necessary truth, and by that, they mean that certain things are necessarily true, always, universally. Another term that means the same thing is a priori truth. A priori is Latin for beforehand. So an a priori truth is something that you must know to be true before you even start looking at the world that the senses reveal to us. The most basic form of necessary truth is the self-evident truth. Self-evident means that you don't really even have to think about it. It has to be true. The truths of mathematics, for example, are often thought of as self-evident. One plus one equals two. You don't need to go all over the world counting things to prove this. In fact, one plus one equals two is something that you need to be sure of before you can even count at all. Now, one of the criticisms that empiricists would put forth is that one plus one equals two is really a trivial example. It's a tautology, meaning it's true, sure, but not because it's self-evident. It's true because when human beings created the rules of mathematics, we made it true. One plus one is the definition of two, and so on with the rest of mathematics. Human beings created math in such a way that it works consistently for us. But back to the rationalists. Other self-evident truths that have been put forth over the years include you can't be in two places at once, or something either is or it isn't, or everything exists. Now these are pretty good candidates, don't you think? But often, what is self-evident to one person is not quite so self-evident to another. God exists. Some people look at the structure of the universe and for them, this statement is self-evident. But other people would disagree with it quite vigorously. Or the idea that the universe had to have a beginning. On the other hand, some people believe that the universe has always been. 
This example, however, may be a little dated, because modern scientists, peering through the Hubble telescope, have definitively shown that the universe is expanding, and it is speeding up as it expands, meaning that if we were to rewind geological time, that the universe must have at some point in history been a single point, hence the origin of the Big Bang Theory. But another familiar use of the phrase self-evident comes from Thomas Jefferson's use of this phrase in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are powerful words, but as we think about them, it becomes more and more obvious that claims of all men being created equal are not really, really true. Instead, the claims of self-evidence are really a rhetorical device. That is, it sounds really good to put it that way, but the facts really don't support that claim. So in order for us to reason our way to more complex knowledge, we have to add deduction. This is also known as analytical truth. Now, this is what we usually think of when we think of thinking. With the rules of logic, we can discover what truths follow from other truths. And the basic form of this is called a syllogism. A syllogism is a pattern invented by Aristotle, and it has continued to be the foundation of logic to this present day. The traditional example is this one. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. This syllogism comes in the form of if X, then Y. If you are human, then you are mortal. We begin with a statement of X, you are human, and therefore conclude Y, you are mortal. This result will always be true if the first two parts of the syllogism are true. So we can create whole systems of knowledge by using more and more of these logical deductions. Another syllogism that works is in the form of if X, then Y, not Y, therefore not X. So for instance, if you are human, then you are mortal. You are not mortal, therefore you are not human. If the first two parts, X and Y, are true, then the last one is necessarily true. On the other hand, there are mistakes of reasoning, fallacies, that can be created with syllogisms. For instance, there are syllogisms that don't work even though they sound an awful lot like the ones that I just showed you. For instance, this one. If X, then Y. Not X, therefore not Y. So for example, if you are human, then you are mortal. You are not human, therefore you are not mortal. Now that, of course, would come as a big surprise to animals. Or look at this example. If God would show himself to me personally, that would prove the truth of religion. But God has not shown himself to me, therefore religion is false. It may sound like a reasonable argument, 
but it's not. This is a fallacy called the denial of the antecedent. Now another fallacy goes like this. If x, then y. Y, therefore x. For example, if you are human, then you are mortal. You are mortal, therefore you are human. Again, this would come as a surprise to many animals. Or try this one. If God created the universe, we would see order in nature. We do in fact see order in the universe, the laws of nature, and therefore God must have created the universe. It sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds logical, but it's not. It's not at all logical because the order in the universe could have come about by another cause. And this fallacy is called the affirmation of the consequent. Now, there are many types of rationalism, and usually we refer to them by their creators. The best known, of course, is Plato's and Socrates. Aristotle, although he pretty much invented modern logic, is not entirely a rationalist. He was also interested in the truths of the senses. The most magnificent example of rationalism is Benedict Spinoza. In a book called Ethics, he began with one self-evident truth. God exists. But by God, he meant the entire universe, both physical and spiritual. So, in that reasoning, his truth does seem pretty self-evident. Everything that is, is. But from that truth, he carefully, step by step, reasons his way to a very sophisticated system of metaphysics, ethics, and psychology. Now let's turn to empiricism. Empiricism focuses, logically enough, on empirical truth, also known as synthetic truth, which we derive from our sensory experience of the world. Now, many people think that empiricism is the same thing as science, and that is an unfortunate mistake. The reason that empiricism is tied so closely in our minds with science is really more historical than philosophical. After many centuries of religious rationalism dominating European thinking, people like Galileo and Francis Bacon came out and said, hey, how about paying some attention to the world out there instead of just trying to derive truth from the scriptures? The stage for this change in attitude was in fact already set by St. Thomas Aquinas, who felt at least that scriptural truth and empirical truth need not conflict. The simplest form of empirical truth is that based on direct observation, taking a good hard look. Open your eyes. See what you can see. What does the world reveal to you? Now this, I must say, is not the same as anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence would be saying, uh, I know a guy who has a cousin in Topeka who married a woman whose college roommate saw a UFO. That's not the same thing as saying, I saw a UFO. It means that there is an observation that I made that you can make too, and that 
were it possible, everyone should be able to make. In other words, here is a UFO. Everybody, come, take a look. Now, rationalists would counter this, arguing that, of course, we could all be having the same hallucination, so we can't totally be sure that we can trust our senses. Now, in order to build a more complex body of knowledge from these direct observations, we must make use of induction. This is also known as indirect empirical knowledge. We take the observations and we carefully stretch them to cover more ground than we could ever actually cover directly. And the basic form of this is called generalization. So, for example, say that you have observed that paper bursts into flames when it is heated to 451 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, you've seen this many times. You've showed it to others. So at some point, you make the inductive leap and you say the combustion point or flash point of paper is Fahrenheit 451. Now, it is true that you have not burned every scrap of paper in the universe, but you feel reasonably confident that, under the same conditions, paper will combust at 451 degrees Fahrenheit. That is generalization. You can see that this is where statistics come in, especially in a science like psychology. How many observations do you need to make before you can comfortably generalize? How many exceptions to the desired result can you obtain and explain away as some sort of methodological error before it gets to be too much? What are the odds that my observation is actually true beyond these few observed instances of it? Now, just like there are different styles of rationalism, there are different types of empiricism. In this case, we've given them some names. Most empirical approaches are forms of epistemological realism, which says that what the senses show us is reality. Our senses reveal the truth. The basic form of realism is direct realism, also known as simple realism. Those who disagree with it will sometimes call it naive realism. But direct realism says that what you see is what you get. The senses portray the world accuracy. The Scottish philosopher Thomas Reed is probably the best-known direct realist. The other kind is called critical or representative realism, which suggests that we see sensations, the images of things in the world, not the things directly. So critical realists, like rationalists, point out how often our eyes and other senses deceive us. One famous example is the way that a pencil jutting out of a glass of water seems to be bent at the point that it emerges from the water. Take the pencil out of the water, you find that it is straight. So apparently, something about the optics of air and water leads us to this illusion. So what we really see are the sensations, which are representations of what is real. Descartes and John Locke were both critical realists, and so are the majority of psychologists who study sensation, perception, and cognition. But, to give Reed his due, 
a direct realist would respond to the critical realist that what we call illusions are actually matters of insufficient information. We don't perceive the world in flash photos. We move around. We move our ears and eyes. We use all of our senses. To go back to the pencil example, a complete empirical experience of it would include seeing it from all directions and perhaps even removing it. Only then will we see the real pencil exactly as it is and experience the laws of air-water optics as well. There is a third, rather unusual form of empiricism called subjective idealism that is most associated with Bishop George Berkeley. As an idealist in terms of his metaphysics, Berkeley argued that what we see is actually already a psychological or mental thing to begin with. In fact, if you don't see it, it isn't really there. To be is to be perceived, is how Berkeley put it. Critics of Berkeley's position countered that subjective idealism can't possibly be true because if we kindle a fire in the fireplace and then we all go out, when we come back a few hours later, the fire will have burned away. The wood will no longer be there. Obviously, the fire still existed even though we were not there to perceive it. But to this, Bishop Berkeley also had a definitive answer. Yes, the fire continues to burn even though human beings are not there to perceive it because God is the permanent perceiver. This means that the table you're sitting at doesn't simply cease to exist when you leave the room. God's mind is always present to maintain the table's existence. This, of course, became Bishop Berkeley's proof for the existence of God. Berkeley's subjective idealism could be encapsulated in this famous question. If a tree falls in the woods and there is no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? The subjective idealist would, of course, answer, yes, it does, because God is always there. Another way to look at these three empirical approaches is like this. Critical realism postulates two steps to experiencing the world. First, there is the thing itself, and the light or sounds, etc., that it gives off. And second, there is the mental processing that goes on sometime after that light hits our retinas, or the sound hits our eardrums. Direct realism says that the first step is enough. And subjective idealism says that the second step is all there is. And this reminds me of an old story about three baseball umpires bragging about their abilities. The first umpire, speaking of how he calls balls and strikes, says, I calls them like I sees them. Now the second umpire takes exception and says, Well, I calls them like they are. To which the third umpire replies, Shoot. They ain't nothing till I call them. The first umpire is a critical realist, the second a direct realist, and the third a subjective idealist.
as I said at the beginning of this podcast, rationalism and empiricism don't really have to remain antagonistic. And in fact, they haven't. It could even be said that science is a very well-balanced blend of the two, where each one serves, like co-equal branches of government, as a check and balance to the other. And this is particularly true in the science of psychology. If you remember, the definition of psychology is the scientific study of behavior and mental processes. Well, how do we know anything about behavior? We observe behavior, and direct observation is empiricism. And how do we know anything about mental processes? Because they can't be observed directly, we observe behavior and then we make inferences about the mental processes. And making inferences is the realm of rationalism. So understanding behavior and mental processes requires both rationalism and empiricism. Now, the traditional, ideal picture of science looks like this. Let's start with a theory about how the world works. From this theory, we deduce, using our best logic, a hypothesis, a guess, regarding what we will find in the world of our senses, moving from the general to the specific. And this is rationalism. Then, when we observe what happens in the world of our senses— we take that information and we inductively support or alter our theory, moving from the specific to the general. And this is empiricism. And then we start again around the circle, so that science combines empiricism and rationalism into a cycle of progressive knowledge. Now notice some of the problems that science runs into. If my theory is true then my hypothesis will be supported by observation and or experimentation. But notice, if my hypothesis is supported, that does not mean that my theory is true. It just means that my theory is not necessarily wrong. On the other hand, if my hypothesis is not supported, that does in fact mean that my theory is wrong, assuming that everything else is right and proper. So in science, we never have a theory that we can say is unequivocally true. We only have theories that have stood the test of time. They haven't been shown to be false. Yet. And this is one of the things that most people don't seem to understand about science. For example, people who prefer creationism over Darwinistic evolution will say that since evolution is, quote, only a theory, then creationism is just as legitimate a theory. The two should be taught alongside of each other. But the theory of Darwinistic evolution has been tested time and time and time again. And the observations that scientists have made since Darwin have held up tremendously well. The creationist argument is like saying that a thoroughbred racehorse is just a horse, and therefore any old nag is just as good. On the other hand, tests of creationism show that it fails quickly and easily. 
For instance, all forms of geologic dating show that the Earth is far, far older than the 6,000 years that many young Earth creationists suggest. And not just any one form of geologic dating, all of them. They all collapse on the same conclusion. We have fossils of species that no longer exist. And if these fossils were created by some worldwide flood, as young Earth creationists suggest, this would predict that we should expect to find the fossils of T. rex, velociraptors, and trilobites mingled with the fossils of modern humans, modern horses, and bunny rabbits. And yet, this is not at all what we find in the fossil record. Each prehistoric fossil is locked into rock layers that can be dated throughout millions of years of geologic history. There is a notable lack of fossils of human beings during the dinosaur age. There are intermediate or transitional fossils that show the connections between species. And there are examples of species changing right before our eyes. There is a vast body of related knowledge concerning genetics. But with every piece of evidence shown to creationists, they respond with what the logicians call an ad hoc argument. An ad hoc argument is one that is created after the fact, in an attempt to deal with unforeseen problems, instead of being a part of the theory from the very beginning. For instance, creationism never used to include any mention of dinosaurs, until the first dinosaur skeleton was described in 1824. And now, young earth creationists might tell you that Noah had dinosaurs on his ark. The reason that testing methods like carbon dating show a very old Earth is because the scientists doing the testing already accept evolution and therefore they're viewing it through that lens. If only those scientists would accept the truth of biblical creation, then they would see what any creationist sees, that radiocarbon dating can't be accurate. Or perhaps another creationist might say that God put the fossils there in the rocks to test our faith. Or others explain it by saying that the days of Genesis were actually millions of years long, instead of six literal days. Or perhaps just mysterious are the ways of the Lord. But obviously, creationism and its subsequent intelligent design are based on faith, not on science. I am not the only person who believes this. In fact, although some creationists do try to appropriate scientific language to bolster their beliefs about their worldview, the fact remains that those who believe in creationism do so for theological and religious reasons, not because empirical scientific discovery or biological, geological, or cosmological evidence draws them to that conclusion. Now, to support me in this contention, that a belief in creationism is based in theology rather than science, I turn to a well-known evangelical preacher named John MacArthur. Now, John MacArthur is not some small-time nobody in evangelicalism. His name is known to thousands of followers and listeners to his daily radio program, Grace to You, available on fine Christian radio stations everywhere. John MacArthur describes himself as a theologian, and is the pastor-teacher of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. He is also an author, speaker, and the president of the Master's College and Seminary. And he offers a refreshingly honest evaluation 
of the philosophical underpinnings of creationism. Here he is, explaining that creationism is based on faith, not science. Creation is a theological issue, not a scientific issue. Theology is the only source from which we have any information about creation. Now, these quotes are from a sermon that John MacArthur preached called The Theology of Creation. The original MP3 is available at www.gty.org, and I encourage you to download and listen for yourself and draw your own conclusions. He continued in this sermon describing his view about the source of knowledge about all of creation. Biblical theology, the revelation of God in Scripture, trumps all other sources of information and knowledge. But, you might ask, doesn't science help us understand the Bible or, or at least the physical world? Get past the idea that science makes any contribution to an understanding of creation. It makes none. Science is always a work in progress. No one believes in evolution. Evolution is not something that you believe in. You either understand evolution or you don't. It's like gravity. You don't believe in gravity. You just observe it. In fact, whether you believe in gravity or not, gravity is still going to work on you if you decide to step off of a building, no matter what else you believe. So it's not a matter of belief in evolution or the theory of relativity or the laws of thermodynamics. It's not like the way that someone believes in God or angels or the Bible. Rather, what we do is we accept evolution as the best explanation available for now. It's the one that has the best reasoning working for it. It's the one that fits best with the evidence that we have. Science is not a matter of faith. Or, as John MacArthur puts it very well, There is no such thing as the science of creation. It does not exist. Why? Because there is no scientific way to explain creation. Science is, of course, embedded in society and can be influenced by culture. And like any other human endeavor, science can be warped by greed or pride or simple incompetence. Scientists may be corrupt. Scientific organizations may be dominated by some special interest group or another. Experimental results may be falsified. Studies may be poorly constructed. Scientific results may be used to support bad policy decisions, and so on and so on and so on. But science is really just a method of gaining knowledge. Not knowledge we can necessarily be certain about, but knowledge that we can rely on and that we can use with some confidence. So no matter what else we might say about possible negatives, the scientific method has been the most successful method of epistemology that we human beings have ever tried. <laughs> 